Chapter Seven of the Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Seven Through Two Snows. Dear friend, thus in the spring the Virginian wrote me, yours received. It must be a poor thing to be sick. That time I was shot at Cañada de Oro would have made me sick if it had been a little lower or if I was much of a drinking man. You will be well if you give over city life and take a hunt with me about August or, say, September, for then the elk will be out of the velvet. Things do not please me here just now, and I am going to settle it by vamoosing. But I would be glad to see you. It would be pleasure, not business, for me to show you plenty elk and get you strong. I am not crybabying to the judge or making any kick about things. He will want me back after he has swallowed a little tincture of time. It is the best dose I know. Now to answer your questions. Yes, the Emily hen might have ate loco weed if hens do. I never saw anything but stock and horses get poisoned with loco weed. No, the school is not built yet. They are always big talkers on Bear Creek. No, I have not seen Steve. He is around, but I am sorry for him. Yes, I have been to Medicine Bow. I had the welcome I wanted. Do you remember a man I played poker and he did not like it? He is working on the upper ranch near Ten Sleep. He does not amount to a thing except with weaklings. Uncle Huey has twins. The boys got him vexed some about it, but I think they are his. Now that is all I know today, and I would like to see you poco presently, as they say at Los Cruces. There's no sense in you being sick. The rest of this letter discussed the best meeting point for us should I decide to join him for a hunt. That hunt was made, and during the weeks of its duration something was said to explain a little more fully the Virginian's difficulty at the Sunk Creek Ranch, and his reason for leaving his excellent employer, the judge. Not much was said, to be sure. The Virginian seldom spent many words upon his own troubles. But it appeared that, owing to some jealousy of him on the part of the foreman or the assistant foreman, he found himself continually doing another man's work, but under circumstances so skillfully arranged that he got neither credit nor pay for it. He would not stoop to telling tales out of school. Therefore his ready and prophetic mind devised the simple expedient of going away altogether. He calculated that Judge Henry would gradually perceive there was a connection between his departure and the cessation of the satisfactory work. After a judicious interval it was his plan to appear again in the neighborhood of Sunk Creek and await results. Concerning Steve, he would say no more than he had written, but it was plain that for some cause this friendship had ceased. Money for his services during the hunt he positively declined to accept, asserting that he had not worked enough to earn his board, and the expedition ended in an untraveled corner of the Yellowstone Park, near Pitchstone Canyon, where he and young Lynn McLean and others were witnesses of a sad and terrible drama that has been elsewhere chronicled. His prophetic mind had foreseen correctly the shape of events at Sunk Creek. 
The only thing that it had not foreseen was the impression to be made upon the judge's mind by his conduct. Toward the close of that winter, Judge and Mrs. Henry visited the East. Through them a number of things became revealed. The Virginian was back at Sunk Creek. "'And,' said Mrs. Henry, "'he would never have left you if I had had my way, Judge H.' "'No, Madam Judge,' retorted her husband. "'I am aware of that, for you have always appreciated a fine appearance in a man.' "'I certainly have,' confessed the lady mirthfully. "'And the way he used to come bringing my horse with the ridges of his black hair so carefully brushed, and that blue-spotted handkerchief tied so effectively round his throat, was something that I missed a great deal after he went away.' "'Thank you, my dear, for this warning. I have plans that will keep him absent quite constantly for the future.' And then they spoke less flightily. "'I always knew,' said the lady, "'that you had found a treasure when that man came.' The judge laughed. "'When it dawned on me,' he said, "'how cleverly he caused me to learn the value of his services by depriving me of them, I doubted whether it was safe to take him back.' "'Safe!' cried Mrs. Henry. "'Safe, my dear, because I'm afraid he is pretty nearly as shrewd as I am, and that's rather dangerous in a subordinate,' the judge laughed again. "'But his action regarding the man they call Steve has made me feel easy.' And then it came out that the Virginian was supposed to have discovered in some way that Steve had fallen from the grace of that particular honesty which respects another man's cattle. It was not known for certain— but calves had begun to disappear in cattle land, and cows had been found killed, and calves with one brand upon them had been found with mothers that bore the brand of another owner. This industry was taking root in cattle land, and of those who practiced it, some were beginning to be suspected. Steve was not quite fully suspected yet, but that the Virginian had parted company with him was definitely known, and neither man would talk about it. There was the further news that the Bear Creek schoolhouse at length stood complete, floor, walls, and roof, and that a lady from Bennington, Vermont, a friend of Mrs. Balaam's, had quite suddenly decided that she would try her hand at instructing the new generation. The judge and Mrs. Henry knew this because Mrs. Balaam had told them of her disappointment that she would be absent from the ranch on Butte Creek when her friend arrived and therefore unable to entertain her. The friend's decision had been quite suddenly made, and must form the subject of the next chapter. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of The Virginian This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister Chapter 8 The Sincere Spinster I do not know with which of the two estimates, Mr. Taylor's or the Virginian's, you agreed. Did you think that Miss Mary Starkwood of Bennington, Vermont, was forty years of age? That would have been an error. At the time she wrote the letter to Mrs. Balaam, of which letter certain portions have been quoted in these pages, she was in her twenty-first year, or, to be more precise, she had been twenty some eight months previous. Now it is not usual for young ladies of twenty to contemplate a journey of nearly two thousand miles to a country where Indians and wild animals live unchained, 
unless they are to make such journey in company with a protector, or are going to a protector's arms at the other end. Nor is school-teaching on Bear Creek a usual ambition for such young ladies. But Miss Mary Stark Wood was not a usual young lady for two reasons. First, there was her descent. Had she so wished, she could have belonged to any number of those patriotic societies of which our American ears have grown accustomed to hear so much. She could have been enrolled in the Boston Tea Party, the Ethan Allen Ticonderogas, the Green Mountain Daughters, the Saratoga Sacred Circle, and the Confederated Colonial Chatelaines. She traced direct descent from the historic lady whose name she bore, that Molly Stark who was not a widow after the battle where her lord, her Captain John, battled so bravely as to send his name thrilling down through the blood of generations of schoolboys. This ancestress was her chief claim to be a member of those shining societies which I have enumerated. But she had been willing to join none of them, although invitations to do so were by no means lacking. I cannot tell you her reason. Still, I can tell you this. When these societies were much spoken of in her presence, her very sprightly countenance became more sprightly, and she added her words of praise or respect to the general chorus. But when she received an invitation to join one of these bodies, her countenance, as she read the missive, would assume an expression which was known to her friends as sticking her nose in the air. I do not think that Molly's reason for refusing to join could have been a truly good one. I should add that her most precious possession, a treasure which accompanied her even if she went away for only one night's absence, was an heirloom, a little miniature portrait of the old Molly Stark, painted when that far-off dame must have been scarce more than twenty. And when each summer the young Molly went to Dunbarton, New Hampshire, to pay her established family visit to the last survivors of her connection who bore the name of Stark, no word that she heard in the Dunbarton houses pleased her so much as when a certain great-aunt would take her by the hand and, after looking with fond intentness at her, pronounce, "'My dear, you're getting more like the general's wife every year you live.' "'I suppose you mean my nose,' Molly would then reply. "'Nonsense, child. You have the family length of nose, and I've never heard that it has disgraced us.' "'But I don't think I'm tall enough for it.' "'There now, run to your room and dress for tea. The Starks have always been punctual.' And after this annual conversation, Molly would run to her room, and there in its privacy, even at the risk of falling below the punctuality of the Starks, she would consult two objects for quite a minute before she began to dress. These objects, as you have already correctly guessed, were the miniature of the general's wife and the looking-glass. So much for Miss Molly Starkwood's descent. The second reason why she was not a usual girl was her character. This character was the result of pride and family pluck, battling with family hardship. Just one year before she was to be presented to the world, not the great metropolitan world, but a world that would have made her welcome and done her homage at its little dances and little dinners in Troy and Rutland and Burlington, 
fortune had turned her back upon the woods. Their possessions had never been great ones, but they had sufficed. From generation to generation the family had gone to school like gentlefolk, dressed like gentlefolk, used the speech and ways of gentlefolk, and, as gentlefolk, lived and died. And now the mills failed. Instead of thinking about her first evening dress, Molly found pupils to whom she could give music lessons. She found handkerchiefs that she could embroider with initials, and she found fruit that she could make into preserves. That machine called the typewriter was then in existence, but the day of women typewriters had as yet scarcely begun to dawn, else I think Molly would have preferred this occupation to the handkerchiefs and the preserves. There were people in Bennington who wondered how Miss Wood could go about from house to house teaching the piano, and she a lady. There always have been such people, I suppose, because the world must always have a rubbish heap. But we need not dwell upon them further than to mention one other remark of theirs regarding Molly. They all with one voice declared that Sam Bannett was good enough for anybody who did fancy embroidery at five cents a letter. "'I dare say he had a great-grandmother quite as good as hers,' remarked Mrs. Flint, the wife of the Baptist minister. "'That's entirely possible,' returned the Episcopal rector of Hoosick. "'Only we don't happen to know who she was.' The rector was a friend of Molly's. After this little observation, Mrs. Flint said no more, but continued her purchases in the store where she and the rector had happened to find themselves together. Later she stated to a friend that she had always thought the Episcopal Church a snobbish one, and now she knew it. So public opinion went on being indignant over Molly's conduct. She could stoop to work for money, and yet she pretended to hold herself above the most rising young man in Hoosick Falls, and all just because there was a difference in their grandmothers. Was this the reason at the bottom of it, the very bottom? I cannot be certain, because I have never been a girl myself. Perhaps she thought that work is not a stooping, and that marriage may be. Perhaps, but all I really know is that Molly Wood continued cheerfully to embroider the handkerchiefs, make the preserves, teach the pupils, and firmly to reject Sam Bannett. Thus it went on until she was twenty. There certain members of her family began to tell her how rich Sam was going to be, was indeed already. It was at this time that she wrote Mrs. Balaam her doubts and her desires as to migrating to Bear Creek. It was at this time also that her face grew a little paler, and her friends thought that she was overworked, and Mrs. Flint feared she was losing her looks. It was at this time, too, that she grew very intimate with that great aunt over at Dunbarton, and from her received much comfort and strengthening. "'Never,' said the old lady, "'especially if you can't love him.' "'I do like him,' said Molly, "'and he is very kind.' "'Never,' said the old lady again. "'When I die you'll have something, and that will not be long now.' Molly flung her arms around her aunt and stopped her words with a kiss. And then one winter afternoon, two years later, came the last straw. The front door of the old house had shut. Out of it had stepped the persistent suitor. 
Mrs. Flint watched him drive away in his smart sleigh. "'That girl is a fool,' she said furiously, and she came away from her bedroom window where she had posted herself for observation. Inside the old house a door had also shut. This was the door of Molly's own room, and there she sat in floods of tears, for she could not bear to hurt a man who loved her with all the power of love that was in him. It was about twilight when her door opened and an elderly lady came softly in. "'My dear,' she ventured, "'and you were not able—' "'Oh, mother!' cried the girl. "'Have you come to say that, too?' The next day Miss Wood had become very hard. In three weeks she had accepted the position on Bear Creek. In two months she started, heart-heavy, but with a spirit craving the unknown. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Virginian This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister Chapter 9 The Spinster Meets the Unknown On a Monday noon a small company of horsemen strung out along the trail from Sunk Creek to gather cattle over their allotted sweep of range. Spring was backward, and they, as they rode galloping and gathering upon the cold week's work, cursed cheerily and occasionally sang. The Virginian was grave in bearing and of infrequent speech, but he kept a song going, a matter of some seventy-nine verses. Seventy-eight were quite unprintable, and rejoiced his brother cowpunchers monstrously. They, knowing him to be a singular man, forbore ever to press him, and awaited his own humor, lest he should weary of the lyric. And when, after a day of silence apparently saturnine, he would lift his gentle voice and begin, "'If you go to monkey with my Lulu girl, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll carve your heart with my razor, and I'll shoot you with my pistol, too.' Then they would stridently take up each last line, and keep it going three, four, ten times, and kick holes in the ground to the swing of it. By the levels of Bear Creek that reach like inlets among the promontories of the lonely hills, they came upon the schoolhouse, roofed and ready for the first native Wyoming crop. It symbolized the dawn of a neighborhood, and it brought a change into the wilderness air. The feel of it struck cold upon the free spirits of the cowpunchers, and they told each other that, what with women and children and wire fences, this country would not long be a country for men. They stopped for a meal at an old comrade's. They looked over his gate, and there he was, pattering among garden furrows. "'Pickin' nosegays?' inquired the Virginian, and the old comrade asked if they could not recognize potatoes except in the dish. But he grinned sheepishly at them, too, because they knew that he had not always lived in a garden. Then he took them into his house, where they saw an object crawling on the floor with a handful of sulfur matches. He began to remove the matches, but stopped in alarm at the vociferous result, and his wife looked in from the kitchen to caution him about humoring little Christopher. When she beheld the matches she was aghast, but when she saw her baby grow quiet in the arms of the Virginian, she smiled at that cowpuncher and returned to her kitchen. 
Then the Virginian slowly spoke again. "'How many little strangers have you got, James?' "'Only two. "'My, ain't it most three years since you married? "'You mustn't let time creep ahead of you, James.' The father once more grinned at his guests, who themselves turned sheepish and polite, for Mrs. Westfall came in, brisk and hearty, and set the meat upon the table. After that it was she who talked. The guests ate scrupulously, muttering, "'Yes, ma'am,' and "'No, ma'am,' in their plates, while their hostess told them of increasing families upon Bear Creek, and the expected school-teacher, and little Alfred's early teething, and how it was time for all of them to become husbands like James. The bachelors of the saddle listened, always diffident, but eating heartily to the end, and soon after they rode away in a thoughtful clump. The wives of Bear Creek were few as yet, and the homes scattered. The schoolhouse was only a sprig on the vast face of a world of elk and bear and uncertain Indians. But that night, when the earth near the fire was littered with the cowpunchers' beds, the Virginian was heard drawling to himself, "'Alfred and Christopher! Oh, sugar!' They found pleasure in the delicately chosen shade of this oath, he also recited to them a new verse about how he took his Lulu girl to the schoolhouse for to learn her ABC, and, as it was quite original and unprintable, the camp laughed and swore joyfully, and rolled in its blankets to sleep under the stars. Upon a Monday noon likewise, for things will happen so, some tearful people in petticoats waved handkerchiefs at a train that was just leaving Bennington, Vermont. A girl's face smiled back at them once, and withdrew quickly, for they must not see the smile die away. She had with her a little money, a few clothes, and in her mind a rigid determination neither to be a burden to her mother nor to give in to that mother's desires. Absence alone would enable her to carry out this determination. Beyond these things she possessed not much except spelling books, a colonial miniature, and that craving for the unknown which has been mentioned. If the ancestors that we carry shut up inside us take turns in dictating to us our actions and our state of mind, undoubtedly Grandmother Stark was Empress of Molly's spirit upon this Monday. At Hoosick Junction, which came soon, she passed the up-train bound back to her home, and seeing the engineer and the conductor, faces that she knew well, her courage nearly failed her, and she shut her eyes against this glimpse of the familiar things that she was leaving. To keep herself steady, she gripped tightly a little bunch of flowers in her hand. But something caused her eyes to open, and there before her stood Sam Bannett, asking if he might accompany her so far as Rotterdam Junction. "'No!' she told him, with a severity born from the struggle she was making with her grief. "'Not a mile with me, not to Eagle Bridge. Good-bye.' And Sam, what did he do? He obeyed her. I should like to be sorry for him. But obedience was not a lover's part here. He hesitated. The golden moment hung hovering. The conductor cried, "'All aboard!' The train went, and there on the platform stood obedient Sam, with his golden moment gone like a butterfly. 
After Rotterdam Junction, which was some forty minutes farther, Molly Wood sat bravely up in the through-car, dwelling upon the unknown. She thought that she had attained it in Ohio, on Tuesday morning, and wrote a letter about it to Bennington. On Wednesday afternoon she felt sure, and wrote a letter much more picturesque. But on the following day, after breakfast at North Platte, Nebraska, she wrote a very long letter indeed, and told them that she had seen a black pig on a white pile of buffalo bones catching drops of water in the air as they fell from the railroad tank. She also wrote that trees were extraordinarily scarce. Each hour westward from the pig confirmed this opinion, and when she left the train at Rock Creek late upon that fourth night, in those days the trains were slower, she knew that she had really attained the unknown, and sent an expensive telegram to say that she was quite well. At six in the morning the stage drove away into the sagebrush, with her as its only passenger, and by sundown she had passed through some of the primitive perils of the world. The second team, virgin to harness, and displeased with this novelty, tried to take it off, and went down to the bottom of a gully on its eight hind legs, while Miss Wood sat mute and unflinching beside the driver. Therefore he, when it was over, and they on the proper road again, invited her earnestly to be his wife during many of the next fifteen miles, and told her of his snug cabin and his horses and his mine. Then she got down and rode inside, independence and Grandmother Stark shining in her eye. At Point of Rocks, where they had supper and his drive ended, her face distracted his heart, and he told her once more about his cabin, and lamentably hoped she would remember him. She answered sweetly that she would try, and gave him her hand. After all, he was a frank-looking boy, who had paid her the highest compliment that a boy, or a man for that matter, knows, and it is said that Molly Stark, in her day, was not a new woman. The new driver banished the first one from the maiden's mind. He was not a frank-looking boy, and he had been taking whiskey. All night long he took it, while his passenger, helpless and sleepless inside the lurching stage, sat as upright as she possibly could. Nor did the voices that she heard at Drybone reassure her. Sunrise found the white stage lurching eternally on across the alkali, with a driver and a bottle on the box, and a pale girl staring out at the plain, and nodding in her handkerchief some utterly dead flowers. They came to a river where the man bungled over the ford. Two wheels sank down over an edge, and the canvas toppled like a descending kite. The ripple came sucking through the upper spokes, and as she felt the seat careen, she put out her head and tremulously asked if anything was wrong. But the driver was addressing his team, with much language and also with the lash. Then a tall rider appeared close against the buried axles, and took her out of the stage on his horse so suddenly that she screamed. She felt splashes, saw a swimming flood, and found herself lifted down upon the shore. The rider said something to her about cheering up and its being all right, but her wits were stock still, so she did not speak and thank him. 
After four days of train and thirty hours of stage, she was having a little too much of the unknown at once. Then the tall man gently withdrew, leaving her to become herself again. She limply regarded the river pouring round the slanted stage, and a number of horsemen with ropes who righted the vehicle and got it quickly to dry land, and disappeared at once with a herd of cattle, uttering lusty yells. She saw the tall one delaying beside the driver and speaking. He spoke so quietly that not a word reached her, until of a sudden the driver protested loudly. The man had thrown something, which turned out to be a bottle. This twisted loftily and dived into the stream. He said something more to the driver, then put his hand on the saddle-horn, looked half-lingeringly at the passenger on the bank, dropped his grave eyes from hers, and swinging upon his horse, was gone just as the passenger opened her mouth and with inefficient voice murmured, "'Oh, thank you!' at his departing back. The driver drove up now, a chastened creature. He helped Miss Wood in, and inquired after her welfare with a hanging head. Then, meek as his own drenched horses, he climbed back to his reins, and nursed the stage on toward the Boleg Mountains, much as if it had been a perambulator. As for Miss Wood, she sat recovering, and she wondered what the man on the horse must think of her. She knew that she was not ungrateful, and that if he had given her an opportunity she would have explained to him. If he supposed that she did not appreciate his act, here, into the midst of these meditations, came an abrupt memory that she had screamed. She could not be sure when. She rehearsed the adventure from the beginning, and found one or two further uncertainties. How it had all been while she was on the horse, for instance. It was confusing to determine precisely what she had done with her arms. She knew where one of his arms had been, and the handkerchief with the flowers was gone. She made a few rapid dives in search of it. Had she, or had she not, seen him putting something in his pocket? And why had she behaved so unlike herself? In a few miles Miss Wood entertained sentiments of maidenly resentment toward her rescuer, and of maidenly hope to see him again. To that river crossing he came again, alone, when the days were growing short. The ford was dry sand, and the stream a winding lane of shingle. He found a pool, pools always survive the year round in this stream, and having watered his pony, he lunched near the spot to which he had borne the frightened passenger that day. Where the flowing current had been he sat, regarding the now extremely safe channel. "'She certainly wouldn't need to grip me so close this morning,' he said as he pondered over his meal. I reckon it will mightily astonish her when I tell her how harmless the torrent is looking. He held out to his pony a slice of bread matted with sardines, which the pony expertly accepted. "'You're a plum pie-biter, you, Monty,' he continued. Monty rubbed his nose on his master's shoulder. "'I wouldn't trust you with berries and cream. No, sir, not though you did rescue a drowning lady.' Presently he tightened the forward cinch, got in the saddle, and the pony fell into his wise mechanical jog, for he had come a long way and was going a long way, and he knew this as well as the man did. To use the language of cattle land, steers had jumped to seventy-five. 
This was a great and prosperous leap in their value. To have flourished in that golden time you need not be dead now, nor even middle-aged, but it is Wyoming mythology already, quite as fabulous as the high-jumping cow. Indeed, people gathered together and behaved themselves much in the same pleasant and improbable way. Johnson County, and Natrona, and Converse, and others, to say nothing of the Cheyenne Club, had been jumping over the moon for some weeks, all on account of steers. And on the strength of this vigorous price of seventy-five, the Stanton brothers were giving a barbecue at the Goose Egg Outfit, their ranch on Bear Creek. Of course the whole neighborhood was bidden, and would come forty miles to a man. Some would come further. The Virginian was coming a hundred and eighteen. It had struck him, rather suddenly, as shall be made plain, that he would like to see how they were getting along up there on Bear Creek. They, was how he put it to his acquaintances. His acquaintances did not know that he had bought himself a pair of trousers and a scarf, unnecessarily excellent for such a general visit. They did not know that in the spring, two days after the adventure with the stage, he had learned accidentally who the lady in the stage was. This he had kept to himself. Nor did the camp ever notice that he had ceased to sing that eightieth stanza he had made about the ABC, the stanza which was not printable. He effaced it imperceptibly, giving the boys the other seventy-nine at judicious intervals. They dreamed of no guile, but merely saw in him, whether frequenting camp or town, the same not over-angelic comrade whom they valued and could not wholly understand. All spring he had ridden trail, worked at ditches during summer, and now he had just finished with the beef round-up. Yesterday, while he was spending a little comfortable money at the Drybone Hog Ranch, a casual traveler from the north gossiped of Bear Creek, and the fences up there, and the farm crops, the West Falls, and the young schoolmarm from Vermont, for whom the tailors had built a cabin next door to theirs. The traveler had not seen her, but Mrs. Taylor and all the ladies thought the world of her, and Lynn McLean had told him she was away up in G. She would have plenty of partners at this Swinton barbecue. Great boon for the country, wasn't it, steers jumping that way? The Virginian heard, asking no questions, and left town in an hour, with the scarf and trousers tied in his slicker behind his saddle. After looking upon the ford again, even though it was dry and not at all the same place, he journeyed in attentively. When you have been hard at work for months with no time to think, of course you think a great deal during your first empty days. "'Step along, you Monty Hoss,' he said, rousing after some while. He disciplined Monty, who flattened his ears affectedly and snorted. "'Why, you surely ain't thinking of yourself as a hero?' She wasn't really a drowndin', you pie-biter. He rested his serious glance upon the alkali. She's not likely to have forgot that mix-up, though. I guess I'll not remind her about grippin' me and all that. She wasn't the kind a man ought to josh about such things. She had a right clear eye. Thus, tall and loose in the saddle, did he jog along the sixty miles which still lay between him and the dance. End of chapter 9